0: Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. I almost hate to use the word educational. Charles Staley.
1: And uh, I failed phys and
0: English all the way through high school. Phil Stevens. I guess I'm kind of the the
1: dark force here. And
0: Rob Fortress Fortney.
1: But there really is no secret. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Rob Fortress-Fortney, and this is IronRadio.org. Um, I'm a former editor at MuscleMag International, a former competitive bodybuilder and a powerlifter.
0: Hey, let me get in there. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am a former competitive bodybuilder as well, and I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor.
2: And this is Phil Stevens. I'm not a former competitive bodybuilder. Um, strength athlete, Highland Games, powerlifting, strongman, and such, and broadcasting live here from Wichita Falls Athletic Club. And today with us we have Garrett Smith. Uh, Garrett, thanks for doing this.
1: No problem. My pleasure.
2: Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, Garrett is, um, well, a lifetime resident at Tucson. He's, he's an alumnus of Southwest College of Naturopath Medicine. Currently operates a uh, general naturopath medicine medical practice down there. Um, he does a lot with low intensity laser therapy. He's an ardent believer in no harm. Uh, the three major areas Dr. Smith focuses on are, uh, you know, he puts on nutrition, exercise, energetic medicine modalities, all that sort of stuff. He's also an athlete. Um, I've had the pleasure of competing with and against uh, Garrett, not and his butts. they they got a hell of a team, and um, he's just putting out some, some interesting athletes and information out there. Again, uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming on board and talking with us today. My pleasure. So, um, you know, I guess we'll start it out here. Um, what I know you from most is, is your lifting background. Um, that's where I've seen you this and that. How, how did you get started in, in, in lifting?
1: Oh, gosh. Fitness was kind of um, – well, I played the normal team sports that we have down in Arizona, you know, the basketball, baseball, the stuff that – around everywhere. And then I got uh, – I kind of noticed, you know, bodybuilding mags, and I got into lifting, you know, five-pound concrete dumbbells at my house when I was 11. Next thing I know, my dad's buying me uh, a bodybuilding book, and it just kind of went for – I got into fitness. Fitness led to nutrition nutrition led to um naturopathic medical school and now i'm kind of out doing my thing in terms of training i've i went through phases you know i went through the bodybuilding phase i went through a triathlon phase i went through uh crossfit phase and now i'm kind of combining uh doing meets and olympic weightlifting and powerlifting and um island games so just kind of Doing it all. I was a personal trainer for 13 years before I actually went into private practice as a physician. So I've done I've done a lot of it in the fitness field. It's been fun.
2: Yeah, one of the things I noticed about you guys from the start is you're out there putting it on the line. I mean, uh, you guys compete in damn near everything. <laughs> you know, there's not a meet I go to that's like, well, there he is again. Right. You, know, you get in there and you try a sport, and you guys sign up and do it.
1: Oh our our recent our recent adventure was this last weekend we did dodgeball just for the heck of it. Which nice. <laughs> is brutal when you have adults playing dodgeball. Um, but yeah the 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 power, the Olympic weightlifting I mean that's where I first saw you guys you and Charles. Yeah. And then uh, the powerlifting just kind of that 100% raw organization is is pretty big in Arizona and that's yeah. that's been a lot of fun. And then the Highland Games was just kind of like I was the first of the group to do that. Actually no wait, Ian was. Ian was the first of the group to do that. I didn't really even realize he had done that. And then uh I tried it out and now we got all three of our our main guys doing it. It's just been it's been a blast. I really don't the whole I thought it was hilarious when you came up with the Fibromangina thing.
2: <laughs>
1: because it's just amazing to me that, that people are so scared once they become adults so many people are so afraid of competing because it we've i don't know if it's america or what but we've created this like if you don't win then it's kind of like i don't know if people perceive that they suck so why do it i mean it was you should have seen how hard it was for me to get six people to do a a silly little for fun dodgeball tournament yeah i'm sure you know, I mean, much less go out there and, and, and lift weights and try to lift as much weight as you can in front of other people.
2: No, but, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a great message and one you guys are putting out in. I mean, and that's not saying you guys aren't going out there and, and doing damn well, especially in, you know, you're doing real well in Olympic weightlifting, so what I've seen. And But it's just, you know, just signing up is doing a lot nowadays, which is kind of sad. Right. <laughs> right, and, uh, I bad. don't understand either. Why it's just more people get out there and put yourself on the line a little bit? But so so, how, how did you transition that into this your natural path and, and such?
1: What yeah. Well, it was. I was kind of always interested in my my dad was a dentist, and I was kind of always interested in the in the medical field. And when I was younger, I wanted to go into. I had this concept in my head that I wanted to go into sports medicine. Um. And as I got older, I kind of, I wasn't satisfied with the with the conventional medical approach and the way I perceived it. So I, I wanted to be in sports medicine, but I just knew I didn't want to be an MD. And so that led me to, um, I got my degree in, in exercise physiology with a minor in nutrition, and I didn't know what I was going to do with that. I tried out my hand, I was a physical therapy tech, ended up, didn't, didn't really, physical therapy wasn't my thing. Um, tried I, was, I did my hand at a student athletic trainer back when they had the intern route. I thought about being an athletic trainer, and then I just, I kind of saw my perception was that athletic trainers weren't appreciated very much, and they sure weren't paid the what they were worth for the six, 60 to 80-hour work weeks I was seeing them do. Yeah. And uh, I mean, when I heard like around here, it was 30,000-something 30, 30, for like 60 to 80 hours a week. Yep. constant travel and all that. And then uh, I was working in a vitamin store when I uh, my, my manager put a poster on the wall of the fridge that said, you know, naturopathic medical school. And at first I was going, well, who are these guys? This is just some alphabet soup name, whatever. I go to their website. I found out that they are actually licensed practitioners in uh, I think it's about 16 states now. And Arizona just happened to have the best scope of practice in the country, and there was a school in Phoenix, which was two hour drive for me so when I had my my girlfriend at the time, now my lovely wife at a at a two hour long distance relationship rather than the other schools which are across the country, um just kind of made the choice easy and so I figured I could become a doctor and do the kind of things that I was interested in and that's it just one thing led to another, and that's how I'm here. <laughs>
2: Um, on that, I'm going to go ahead and because I think the, just the most information and, and why we initially wanted you to come on here was the, was kind of the topic of the day. So let's go ahead and kind of segue into that. and We'll see where where it runs into.
1: Okay. Well, I I took the the topic was uh, the nightshade family of of vegetables, also known as the the Latin name of them is Solanaceae, and that's a huge family of plants. And there's the reason why I got into it and the reason why why Charles was originally interested in me um, talking to me about doing this with you guys was because I've found in, in a lot of people, there's an urban legend about the nightshades, that they can make arthritis pain worse, and they generally just make, can make pain worse in certain people. And the reason I got interested in them was because I've always had, since I was about, I think, 13 years old, I've had this middle back pain that you can imagine a naturopathic physician, I'm open to all sorts of treatments. So I went and I've done all, I mean, people tell me they've tried everything, and I go, you don't even know what everything is. Um, I tried it all, got some relief for a day or two from a lot of things, and didn't. but didn't wasn't ever satisfied, and it actually limited my heavy lifting career. I think I would have been into more of the, of the heavy sports earlier in life if it wasn't for this middle back thing. Finally, I learned about the nightshades. I decided, what the heck, I'll try it, you know, even though, like, salsa was one of my favorite foods. Everything I ate was spicy, all that stuff. And I got about 90% pain relief. And I was finally able to start lifting heavy and and continue lifting heavy without my back tending to bother me enough that I would have to lay off for weeks. So that's when I started to take a a belief in it. Um, I I started doing a lot more research on it. I found there's a book by, and I want to give proper credit where credit's due, Dr. Childers, Wrote a book called the Arthritis Diet, um or yeah, it was Arthritis, Children's Diet That Stops It, and, and it's available at noarthritis.com, dot com. Read that book. He kind of what I was after, after I figured out that they worked for me, I was I'm I'm more about what works rather than like if there's a ton of scientific evidence behind it um at the times. But he had done some you know, some recall studies with patients who had avoided arthritis, and they had found good results with the patients who had avoided the nightshades. That was the only study at the time, and I wanted to figure out more about the the mechanisms, because I'd have patients, and of course, like, I'm sure you guys would want to know, people say, well, what are the nightshades doing? Why, if everybody else says that tomatoes are good for me, you know, potatoes are complex carbohydrates, and we're supposed to eat more of those, and you know, eggplants a vegetable and everything else. They 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 everybody thinks they're good for them. And so they're eating more of them, kind of like a lot of people with the whole grain thing. And now gluten intolerance and, and celiac is you know, people are really realizing that whether or not modern medicine diagnoses them with it, they try avoiding gluten and oftentimes, more often than not, they feel better. Same thing that I find with a lot of people who who avoid the nightshades.
2: Okay. Um <sighs> You kind of mentioned that it's this. How, how does okay? It's well, not for everybody, like you said earlier. Uh, how does one know if they have a problem? I mean, how does what uh, is there any way of identifying if if you may?
1: Well, I should probably go over what they are first, okay. just so so that the listeners know um, what plants we're typically talking about. Um, the one that everybody knows and generally kind of accepts that isn't good for people is tobacco. That's a, that's a big member of the family. The next we get into the edible ones that, that people are, are consuming often regularly on a daily if not weekly basis. We're talking about tomatoes, potatoes, not sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes are a different, different family. Um, peppers, and we're talking about here the, the capsaicin family, not peppercorns like ground black pepper. That's not, that's not a pepper we're talking about here. And then we're talking about eggplant. Some of the more recent ones that people have started eating a lot of are um, the new wonder antioxidant is goji berries. And then um, there's another one that I've seen in Trader Joe's. They're cape gooseberries, and they dry them out. And some people have talked about when they were kids, they had gooseberry pie and stuff like that. And then one last one is the herb ashwagandha, which I know it it is a nightshade, and it's fallen into the same... React. I've had the same reactions to it that I have to the other ones. So anyway, those are those are the nightshades. That's that's really what we're talking about. Um, it sounded like Lonnie. Were you? Did you have a question? No. Oh, okay. I thought I heard you. I heard you speaking up earlier. So so those are the foods we're talking about. Um, what's going on now is I kind of went through. Uh, I, I kind of started to find out the the compounds. That are inherent in these in these foods, and and what they do because there's there's no studies on people consuming the nightshades, other than Dr. Childers' one like dietary recall study and how people's pain corresponded to how much they were avoiding the nightshades. So myself and now um, Dr. Lauren Cordain of the Paleo diet, he's been putting together some mechanisms that I that I was unaware of, and then I had the mechanisms that I was able to find, and with those. We've kind of got quite a quite a picture here of what's possibly going on. We still there's still no direct studies on this causes that from eating these foods. So what we get into the general thing, um, lots of there's some history stuff with the nightshades, um, where people you know hundred years ago or more had certain ideas about the nightshades. Um, the tomato. Well, actually, what what Doctor Cordain pointed out was that prior to 1492, Europeans in general had not really ever consumed these foods. They're they're a very new food to to the food chain. Um, people always think that like Italians have been consuming them forever, and then they realize that, that that those are American Italians and not Italy Italians. Um, so tomatoes were actually first in the 1900s were grown. The people didn't eat them. They were grown as an ornamental. like They, they grew them because they were pretty. And the Europeans actually had said, the quote here was, it was considered poisonous and disease-producing and still is by some Europeans. So for some reason, these, these Europeans have, have had a long-term reason to, to consider them poisonous. Potatoes, there was, there was histories of, our history of when potatoes from, in 1782, Scottish Highlanders complained of dropsy, or basically edema, from the beginnings of congestive heart failure when they ate a lot of potatoes. And then Russian prisoners of World War II came back, and they were complaining of this dropsy, this puffiness, this edema, because their diet, when their diet had mainly been potatoes. And then there is a saying from 1719, the, the saying was, the white potato shorten men's lives. And so that—that's just you know history of potatoes before we ever had these chemical studies or these compound studies. And then the eggplant, eggplant again was grown as an ornamental, a pretty plant. It wasn't eaten. Um, in the Mediterranean, it was considered that it was thought to cause insanity if you ate it every day for a month. And then another another thing about the deriv- derivation of the, it was called the mad apple. The derivation of the name, which may have come from the Italian name Melisana or the pre name Mala Insana. So an apple that, you know, drives you mad. So there weren't, there weren't many historical references to peppers, but so there is a history of people having suspicion about these foods or, or thinking that they weren't good for them. And so that was before we had all of this. The main, the first mechanism that we get into was calcinosis or deposits of calcium into soft tissue in animals. I don't know how many studies I have here, on but I have multiple studies in, in different types of animals with multiple different types of nightshades as it causing calcium deposits in the soft tissues. What we get into in the early stages of calcium deposits, when we're talking about people, most likely this may be some variation of osteoarthritis, which is what they see on x-rays. When I mean, they can have people without pain and they look at the x-ray and they go, you have Calcium deposits in the joint, we can see it on the x-ray. And then calcium deposits, as they progress, become things like bone spurs. And and people are, you know, there's a theory of mine that people aren't necessarily losing cartilage, like, let's say, in their knee. It's that the cartilage is actually calcifying from the bottom up. Um, and that's just another soft tissue calcification. Because all they do is they notice on the x-ray that you have less cartilage than before. And then they've got bone spurs, and they can see calcium. You know, the, the X-ray is foggy and that. So that's that's the one thing. Um, there's the calcinosis. Now, what do they think causes that? This is a long explanation, and I don't want to make it too too long. But calcitriol is the act the, the super active form of vitamin D. This is not what we take, or this is not this is a very indirect thing. It it has to go through the liver and kidneys to make it in the body, but calcitriol in too high of a dose will cause calcification and calcitriol has been found in the nightshade plants. So this is very different than the vitamin D3 you might take over the counter or D2 and the body has very tight controls on calcitriol because if we get too much of it, it, it calcifies soft tissue and this is, this is well known. So that's, I want to let you guys get in here. That's that's one mechanism. That's just the first thing when we're talking about the arthritis issue.
2: Well, I'm just – the first thing I go to is how is this applied? You know, I don't have this background in in, in what you're talking about, and I'm not going to act like I do. But, I mean, my first case is, you know, you started out saying, you know, maybe everybody doesn't react to this. But should we all be worried about it?
1: Well, you know, it's one of those things that, um, do I think some people are more sensitive than others? Yes. It's just like, do I think some people were born to run faster than others? Yes. Um, I'm trying to figure, I've been on the process of figuring out what might cause certain people to react more or less than others. Because certain people who eat certain diets, especially diets that are really full of vitamin K, from like grass-fed animals, grass-fed milk, that kind of stuff. When they're getting a lot of vitamin K from their diet, they don't seem to be as sensitive. Um, people who are magnesium deficient seem to react a lot more to these foods. So, but the thing about it is, why why should someone care? Obviously, if if especially athletes who are training real hard, the thing that has been found with the calcification as there's more. I heard I heard a quote, a, a statistic when I was really young that. You know, if you have joint damage, there's a 90% chance you're going to get arthritis in that joint. Do I know why, and am I going to say that it's because of the nightshades? No. Um, however, it makes sense to me that just like with a car with a nice paint job, you take a car with a nice paint, new paint job, you go and you have it by the beach. If the car has a solid paint job, the rust is not going to start at any one particular point more than another. You have to wait for the whole paint job to kind of erode to a place where the rust can start. Whereas if somebody comes along and keys the car, where is the rust going to start? It's going to start right at the keyed spot. So as athletes, we're we're more than likely going to take some dings, cause some injuries along the way. That just gives the calcification, especially since we've already talked about that mechanism, that just gives it a place to start. So And it's one of those things where you, you don't have to care about it now. nobody has to care about it now, if they're not necessarily thinking they're feeling it, or if they haven't taken the time to avoid eating them to see how they might feel without them. That's the thing. Most people are consuming one or more of these foods on, a, on an almost daily basis if they're not trying to avoid them. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of one of those things. I, I you know, people can do it where if they've tried everything for their joint pain. Or their back pain, or their rheumatoid arthritis, or their other or other autoimmune diseases, which I'll get into later. Um, if they've tried everything and it hasn't worked, this is this is something to absolutely give it a shot.
2: Yeah. My question, my next question would be: I mean, much like other food allergies, I mean, this, this isn't food, all the time.
1: This isn't a this food is, allergy.
2: Okay. Well, let me make a connection here. Is what I'm going. Okay. to uh, Okay, people allergic to milk, people allergic to gluten, allergic to It's a very Western thing. I mean, if I go to Ethiopia, I'm pretty sure I can feed about anybody their milk, and they're going to be happy and not allergic. What I'm getting at is, is this more of an overconsumption thing?
1: Yeah, Um, actually, um, Dr. Cordain, let me find my paper. I have them all sitting here. Uh, Dr. Cordain actually found a paper where they totaled up in the US we're consuming almost 230 pounds of nightshades nice per person on a yearly basis so as you can imagine if if we have athletes and they're trying to carb up with potatoes or something they might be having even more you have somebody who's like really into spicy food they might be consuming even more other countries they're they're starting to eat more of these because this is kind of a it's kind of a western thing we kind of grabbed onto it and made it more of a western thing the milk yeah. thing, the gluten thing. I mean, we have, I don't know if you know this, but we're we're actually breeding and, and modifying our wheat here to have more gluten. Yeah. So, like, it is, yes, we've changed the wheat yeah, here.
2: Just, as I mean, we kind of take everything here in the West, and
1: we, if a
2: little's good, a shit ton's better. Right. <laughs> and it's come back and bitten us a lot of times. I'm just wondering if possibly that is the case. Because, I mean, sure, there are plenty of studies out there saying, that look, the tomato's good for you. Right. Well,
1: they're they're mainly, they're trying to link it to the lycopene, and they're trying to link that typically to cancer. And Dr. Cordain, in one of his papers, he went over how the tomato might actually specifically prevent certain types of cancer because of a, it's like a friendly fire thing. It's actually damaging certain tissues, but in the process of damaging those tissues, it's actually killing cancer cells in those tissues. But the thing about... um, Why we might be having more of a problem? Well, you know the one recommendation of you need to eat lots of different colors of vegetables in your diet, right? Yeah. People look at a plate, and, well, first of all, people look at how many colors are there in peppers, right? Red, yellow, green, you know, all this stuff. And people look at a plate of peppers, and they go, wow, they they put a couple different colors of peppers in there. They go, okay, I'm getting my red, my yellow, my green. And then we're recommended to eat tomatoes. And so, I mean, most vegetables are green. Right, or some variation of green. Yep. So we start saying, well, you need to get a lot of colors of vegetables in your diet, and, and the, the default, the one that's available in the store a lot and the one that people are familiar with is, the one way of getting a lot of those colors is peppers. So that could be another part of it. The other thing is we started to make, if you notice, restaurants, starting, a lot of things are starting to have spicy. Everything's spicy. And places are trying to say, even, they're even making like those corn chips, like the super extreme spicy corn chips. Yeah. You know, so everything's starting to get more, in general, is starting to have more capsaicin in it, more peppers in it. So, yeah, it's it's definitely our Western culture. If a little is good, more is better. And, I mean, our, us overeating is a whole other thing. But, um, I mean, even in gluten-free products, let's say you have somebody who has problems with their gut, well, there's a lot of issues with potato, with a compound in potatoes called sol well, two compounds, solanine and alpha chacanine which have been well documented in-, in the literature to cause gut irritation. Well, a lot of gluten-free products, they start replacing the wheat with potato starch. And all of a sudden, I- I've had people who tell me they went on a gluten-free diet and they started doing all these gluten-free products and they didn't feel any better. Yeah. So then I have to get them off all the potato starch products. <laughs> Because those, they can both irritate the guts, and actually, again, not to mention Dr. Cordain too often, but he, it is his stuff on, on the, the lectins and the leaky gut. Tomatoes and potatoes and peppers all have stuff in them that in different ways cause leaky gut, which is one of the big things that gluten causes. Let's so, start getting
2: practical here. Okay. How does one put the rubber on the road? <laughs> you know, I mean, because we're saying don't eat gluten, don't eat tomatoes, don't eat peppers, don't eat blah, 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 blah.
0: You know what, Phil, let, if I can just interject, I don't think we should be saying that necessarily. Um, we're talking about things that are uh, chemoprotective, you know, uh, like saying don't – nobody should ever eat tomatoes. Nobody should ever eat uh, peppers, Um I don't think that's necessarily what we should be saying I mean we're talking about how Americans overdo it and I mean variety is one of our biggest issues I think in this country there's there's little doubt um, but we we don't want to turn people off to fruit and vegetable consumptions we're talking about foods that are you know they have fiber they have potassium they have a lot of the things that Americans don't have and I'm not saying go focus on them and make the majority of your diet but we have to be very careful and I don't think we're telling anybody don't Ever eat these things? So I just wanted to sort of interject that.
1: Right, right, and yeah, and that's that's something you know with with the with the paucity of of research on actual nightshades and these conditions. You know, it's it's tough to make generalized recommendations like this. It's it is it is one of the things that I that I tend to when I have people coming in with pain in in my practice because I do do a lot of pain treatments. It is one of the first things I go to, and I do get a lot of positive results about it. but yeah, I'm not trying to come on your show saying everybody shouldn't eat these. I know for me, um, like I don't eat them because I don't eat them generally. I, I'll still have them. I'll have them in the week after a meet because I don't. I take a week off after a meet or a big competition, and so it's okay for me to to hurt. I I know that if I eat, I know personally that if I eat these things, I have about four or five days of discomfort. In my back, in my neck, other stuff like that, so I personally the I, I call it as the juice worth the squeeze you know yeah. if if somebody knows that if they actually go through the whole you know the uh avoidance and reintroduction with these, which which takes at least a month of really trying to avoid them and then reintroducing them. i have I have people do what I call a nightshade party where they eat every single nightshade they might normally eat. And as much as possible over the course of the day, I mean, we're talking like potatoes with salsa on them. You know, I I have them really try to emphasize it so so that the contrast between how they feel when they're not eating them and how they feel when they're eating a lot is easier for them to see. And if they don't feel anything, I tell them, well, you know, that that's probably not part of the problem right now. Um, and even Dr. Cordain had said in his stuff, he he doesn't think there's really a good reason to eat potatoes, but he said tomatoes and peppers, you know they they're not showing as as strong an evidence in their direction and i i do think um potatoes are one of the things that i definitely that i definitely avoid but yeah there there are there are good things in them you know so i i don't I, yeah if you don't want to that's fine um
0: <laughs> you know if if i may i i'd like to also make a comment about Uh, calcitriol or calcitriol, that's 125 dihydroxyvitamin D. Um, people make that in their bodies. I mean, you spend time in the sun or the tan bed. Your body will make that. I don't want people to think that that's necessarily a bad thing or toxic thing. It's an important part of absorbing calcium into your body. Uh, and it's, you know, it's the hormonally active form of vitamin D. So it's not like it's a poison or anything. I just, again, I just want people to understand sort of the basic, you know, uh, nutrition and the metabolism of some of this. That's all
1: absolutely that's why it's a hard thing to explain i didn't want to take up too much time with explaining you know d d3 you know 125 dihydroxy and all that stuff but yeah the thing the thing about it is as you know um the kidneys have very tight control over it and all of a sudden if we start adding exogenous calcitriol calcitriol it can it can become what it is what we're looking at is little spikes little spikes over time of calcitriol which in it's very possible that those may, those little spikes may cause just like, let's say, a little sprinkling of extra calcium into the soft tissue. And it's more of an overtime thing or an overconsumption thing that can lead to issues down the line.
0: Well, I think also let's be careful that vitamin D, I mean, is getting a huge amount of research interest because of the relative underconsumption. Uh, vitamin D in the food supply. Again, I know we're talking about things like ergo calciferol or, you know, in this generally in milk or, or that kind of thing. But in any case, um, there's a lot of evidence that vitamin D isn't just about bone, right? I mean, it's also anti-carcinogenic in its own right and that people may be consuming too little. In fact, I know on some of the big, like bodybuilding kinds of websites, they're just going crazy with, you know, you should be taking lots of extra, uh, vitamin D. And things like that, you know. So, I mean, like you said, I, a lot of this, I think, comes down to what's your goal or what's your concern, what's, what's your purpose, right, I mean, as far as some of these things. Because vitamin D is like the hot micronutrient right now because people tend to under-consume it. Their serum levels are too low, you know, and things like that.
1: Right, right. And that's – but that, that just like you're saying, their, their serum levels of, you know, the 25-hydroxy that they measure – Yep. Are too low. Um, but that we don't tend to measure one hundred twenty five dihydroxy except in people who have kidney issues with, with the conversion of, you know, vitamin D. But yeah, I, I put I put like so many of my patients on D three. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't put them on calcitriol unless they had an absolute medical need for it. But yeah, that that I didn't I didn't want to I'm not trying to demonize vitamin D in any in any form. No, I I'm I'm on it myself, but I'm on D3 and not not calcitriol.
0: You're right, sure. Yeah.
1: So, um but yeah, if, if you go and you look at um let's say the 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 calcitriol injectable which they use in patients who need it if they start giving too much of it, they see the calcinosis start rapidly it's it's a it's a known side effect and a known big thing that pretty much people who are on calcitriol long term are going to get calcinosis.
0: Yeah, and you know what, let me make a just a comment too to the the weightlifters out there. If if you're consuming lots of extra D, I mean, if you're uh, the uh, the upper level for vitamin D I think is 2000 units a day of dietary D, um like vitamin D3. And if you really get excited and you think, "Oh, because you know, recent research is suggesting that the old um recommendations for vitamin D in general were far too low. So some people are getting really pumped up, and they're taking even more than the 2,000 sort of ceiling for D. They're taking 4,000, 5,000 a day all the time, especially if you're a very high androgen person, you know, for whatever reason. You're really running the risk of the primary problem, which we're discussing here, which is, you know, too much calcium in your body you're ending up with that kind of you know calcium uh, overload in a sense because you're absorbing it so well and the of your body are adding on top of that so again especially people who are like competitors you know you're you know you're high androgen you know you're consuming lots and lots of d let's not do what phil said and say oh if some is good then tons is better because that's that's not how it works yeah just um, a
2: warning guys uh, I, I'm just going to throw this. If I keep going, uh, my phone will my my phone may die, but I will be around here and end the show. So,
1: <laughs> I, I may be at risk of one of my one of my remote phones dying too. So you won't be alone. Um, so, but yeah, I didn't mean to make it sound all like the the and the calcitriol was was the was the only was the only issue because I don't think that's that's. That's not the only mechanism that might be possible.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, Garrett. What what substances? What phytochemicals? What 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 is the mechanism? Or, or you're just not sure?
1: That's well. That's why there's there's I actually have I think about four or five more that are possibilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, like uh, an early one, people don't realize this, but like all the, all the nightshade plants contain nicotine. You know, most people figure tobacco, nicotine. That's that's about it. When they're eating a tomato, they are eating nicotine. When they're eating potatoes, same thing. The thing about nicotine, this one's pretty quick. What nicotine's been shown to do in in rat studies, and actually I'm, I'm, and and MDs MDs who do surgery and they're doing like rotator cuff surgeries, they know that a patient has to stop smoking because what does nicotine do? Nicotine delays healing. So let's just say you have a hard training athlete and they injure themselves. If if they're eating, let's say, an enough nightshades that they're getting enough dose of nicotine that it's causing this delayed healing. The problem with delayed healing is with delayed healing means bad healing, and that they've done they've done rat rot, rotator cuff models to show that when when they delay healing, they get un, basically unsatisfactory healing. They get inferior healing. So if we have hard training athletes who are eating a lot of these, they get injured their healing isn't as good. This could be why some guys, you know, they, they injure their shoulder, let's say, and it's just never ever right after that. Because that is that's kinda like a, a permanent thing. Until or maybe they go and get prolo therapy or they get other some other modality to help it heal better because it didn't do it right the first time. That's like one of the mechanisms that you know it's hard to prove that one. Because you have to have an injury and you have to know nicotine levels and you have to know all that stuff. Um Next thing, I I can I can go through these I think pretty quick. The other ones, Um, capsaicin. Most people, then you know, there is research showing that some capsaicin in certain situations may be beneficial. The thing about capsaicin, uh, you know, that I get into, people think it's anti-inflammatory, and I go, well, why don't you put some capsaicin in your eye? And people go, well, that would hurt like heck. You know, there there are people who have died from pepper spray, right? It's not. I don't, I don't have the belief that it's anti-inflammatory. Another mark, and then just because we eat it and we can't feel our guts doesn't mean that it's anti-inflammatory to our guts because what the studies show with capsaicin and bowel transit time is you eat too much capsaicin, too much spicy food, they see that bowel transit time decreases. Basically, you poop it out faster. Why is that happening? Maybe it's, my theory is because the guts are irritated and they're saying, please get this stuff out of here, there's there, Dr. Cordain's research has has he's found some stuff on capsaicin actually causing leaky gut. There's quite a bit of it on um, capsaicin and links to um, ga- all sorts of gastric cancers from from the nasal you know the nasal passages, the nasopharyngeal area, all the way down to the colon um, polyps as being related to capsaicin con- consumption. Then this was the interesting thing. Have you guys, Lonnie, especially you, have you heard of the the capsaicin and diabetes study?
0: You know what? Well, actually, I, I just want to make a quick comment about capsaicin. We studied capsaicin in the Kent State lab for a couple of years. There's a there's a professor there, Ellen Glickman. She's an environmental physiologist, and uh, very interestingly, we were looking at it for its thermogenic properties. And you know, here's you talking about uh, capsaicin, and and I totally agree. I mean, if you look at um, Cultures that consume lots of hot pepper and the capsaicin-containing kinds of stuff, there is an increase in you know oral and, and, and gastric cancers and things like that. I mean, again, we don't want to tell people never go eat you know your your favorite you know hot pepper or something. But um, she was actually putting people in cold water and cold air environments and trying to keep their core temperatures high using capsaicin. And a lot of that was military-funded because if you think about it, it's sort of a cool idea that. If you can, if your body can stay, it's about 10% warmer or so with less clothes. That could be an advantage to a soldier in the field and things like that, you know, less bulky, you know, coats and all whatnot. But, but in any case, um, again, we're, we're sort of back to, you know, giving with one hand and taking with another as far as nature is concerned because, uh, I'm actually seeing capsaicin start to appear in thermogenic. Supplements too. So people, it's, well, that's funny because you know you're talking about avoiding it for very particular reasons, and yet people are actually taking it in a supplemental form for others. You know, to boost their me- metabolic rate a little bit. It's just kind of inter- interesting. But no, I'm not familiar with the, the diabetes research on it.
1: Okay. Well, there was a type. They had they had rats that had they they gave them they they basically gave them a toxin that gave them type one diabetes, and then. The, what you'd see all over the internet and everything is capsaicin helped, like basically cure type one diabetes for about a month. What they saw was when they gave these rats an injection of substance P, they didn't need to give these these type one diabetic rats insulin injections for about a month. So they saw their pancreas kind of come back online for about a month. The problem was was they, the the media even even someone as as smart as or depending on your opinion of them, Dr. Mercola misinterpreted the study as being they gave capsaicin to these rats and it made the diabetes better. When they actually gave substance P. Now this is just a quick thing, but capsaicin depletes substance P. And so they totally everybody totally misinterpreted this study as they as capsaicin helping diabetes when cap, capsaicin would actually in general tend to do the opposite effect by depleting substance P. Now, why is that important to athletes? Let's, let's this, this is where we get into a bit of theory. Um, with the, you've heard about the capsaicin creams maybe that they use for diabetic neuropathy or they use for pain relief. You know, a lot of creams nowadays that are for general pain relief use capsaicin. Why do they do that? Well, because capsaicin depletes substance P. Substance P, think of the P as for pain, is a neurotransmitter that helps send the pain signal to the brain. So that's why they can use it in these creams that help decrease pain. And in, and in diabetics, the, the creams they use for diabetics are, are super strong in capsaicin. So, so much so that the people applying them often wear gloves. What's been found in joints that aren't, in scars that have pain after the fact, scars that don't ever kind of lose their pain, and in, and in joints, they've done it in rats. They've had rats in arthritic models where they inject substance P into the arthritic joint of these rats. So they're injecting substance P, not capsaicin, and the joint gets better. And and, and then they've found in certain joints that aren't healing or these painful scars, they have the wrong amount of substance P or they don't have enough substance P. So the, my, my own theoretical extension is that the substance P is part of the signal to the brain that there's a problem, that there's pain and that there's something going on and that, that the brain needs to mobilize resources to come heal the area. And when we don't have enough substance P, it doesn't heal the area. Right, does that all make sense? Do did did you guys follow that?
0: Well, you know, it's it's doesn't sound unlike... Uh... When I, I was at a conference a few years ago and there was a, a, a grad student there and she was presenting some data about um, how ibuprofen prevented white blood cells from moving in and healing, you know, uh, damaged tissue and, and that kind of thing. And one of the older professors who were there, he said, do we want to mess with that process? You know, um, maybe there's something in this process. And again, it's a little bit different physiological situation, but I, I, I think there are similarities where, you know, do, you know, do yeah, do we want to mess with that process, or do we want to allow the white blood cells to go in and wreak havoc and cause some pain inflammation and this and that, because those, those same soldiers, those white blood cells, become medics in the long run and help, help the whole process heal, you know so anyway, I just I, I just see some similarities there, right
1: so that, that was that was the substance P thing, and that that there's actually a lot of the studies on the gut with capsaicin are also involving substance P. Um, so that was that was a substance P thing. That's kind of a neurotransmitter thing. Then um, potatoes. There's just a couple of things in potatoes that that they basically between there is a potato lectin. Kind of lectins are the same category of proteins as like gluten falls under. There's actually a tomato lectin and a potato lectin, and those those in certain studies have been shown to to lead to more um, basically of a leaky gut situation. Potatoes also have that alpha chaconine and alpha-soline I mentioned earlier that have been shown to, to damage the gut tissue. The big thing about potatoes especially, and eggplant too, but most people don't eat too much eggplant. The big thing about potatoes and the, and the alpha alpha and the solanine is that they are acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Now, why is that important? Well, acetylcholine is obviously, with all the acetylcholine supplements out there that a lot of people like to take, or the acetylcholine boosting, I should say. Um, Acetylcholine esterase is what breaks down the acetylcholine, which allows the muscle to then relax. If acetylcholine is one of the big factors that helps it contract, acetylcholine esterase helps break down the acetylcholine so then the muscle can relax. My thought on this is that a lot of the stiffness that athletes have in the morning, or especially if you tend to sit for a while and then you get real stiff before you get back up, is possibly due to these acetylcholinesterase inhibitors that are found in the nightshades. So, And these, these, these compounds are unique to the nightshades. Um, in particular, not, not, they're not the only acetylcholinesterase inhibitor out there, of course, but they're, they're somewhat unique to the nightshades. And so what a lot of people tell me is when they get off of them, their stiffness is a lot less or is, is almost gone. So that's just a theory as to what mechanism is is causing that stiffness to result.
0: You know what may be confusing this whole issue as far as trying to pinpoint a specific uh, molecule or you know culprit is this. This sounds starts to sound very much to me like sort of a nutrigenomics issue where people some people simply have the capacity to respond in a negative way to you know one or more of these substances and some don't, which is which is going to wreak havoc when it comes to traditional research because even when I do my own research now I, this is always in the back of my mind that in the next 5 or 10 years you know basically what we do in research just for the listeners is you know you take a group of people randomly selected hopefully they they represent the greater population of whoever you're looking at whether it's bodybuilders or obese people or whatever and They actually, you know, have different genes. So you, you see on average how people respond to a particular substance, like that, you know, the research we were doing with capsaicin, for example. Some people respond more, some respond less. And that could be for good things, but it could also be for bad things, like, you know, joint stiffness and aching and that kind of stuff. So that's the direction I'd love to see this go, because you do see the nightshade, the whole thing with deadly nightshades and everything, that whole family of, of, um, of Plant foods, you do see that crop up every now and again, you know, and it makes you wonder, there, there's probably something going on here, you know, but the research isn't really, there's not a ton of evidence on this in one way or the other. And like I said, maybe nutrigenomic research can start to pinpoint, you know, a certain percentage of the population carries the gene where those people really suffer from these foods. Maybe those people only need to avoid them. And the other people let's say that might have risk of prostate cancer in their family can go ahead and eat their salsa and eat their tomatoes, you know?
1: Right, right. Yeah. No, I I I totally see some people some people respond extremely well to it and some people go, well, it didn't do a thing for me. And I go, Well, okay, then that's that's not that's not you. But yeah, like the nutrigenomics, it could be, you know, I think the cytochrome the cytochrome system probably plays a huge role here. I do tend to find that like as I as I improve people's magnesium status often their nightshade sensitivity goes down. So I, I do think there's a certain nutrient status issue to this this whole thing.
0: Right. How do you assess that? How do you assess their whether they're sensitive or not? Is it just like an analog scale like a 1 to 10 scale? I'm I'm in this much pain or this much stiffness or
1: It's it's yeah, I mean I use I use a 1 to 10 scale often and um it, it's that that nightshade party that I was talking about. It, it's more of the the patient often I, if they actually do the challenge where they go off it for a month and then they reintroduce it for like a whole day or two and they just they just slam them down. That's usually enough to convince the patient that they may have an issue with it or that they do have an issue with it. And then you know the patient can decide. I mean I've had people who have told me outright. I like tomatoes enough that I'm going to deal with the pain. Yeah. I have no problem with that. I, As long as they know that tomatoes are possibly related to a huge chunk of their pain, and I never tell people that this is the, the reason for all of your pain, because it's like with my back pain, it was 90% better without nightshades. It's still there. I know I still kind of work around it a little bit, but... It's not the it's not the absolute cause. The way I kind of put it to people is is oftentimes if you're sensitive to the nightshades, it's making whatever pain you have worse. But it's probably not the cause of the pain. So we want to figure out obviously what the cause of the pain is, whether it's alignment or musculoskeletal, you know, muscle imbalance or or whatever it is. So um but that's the big thing with athletes. What I what I find with athletes is they just they find that if if they if they avoid them, you know, it'd be like a lot of athletes who they avoid gluten. They find that they can they can train harder, probably because they may they may be sleeping better. They're they're digest they're using less energy of their immune system on their on their gastrointestinal tract to to heal that and deal with that. You know, they just they basically find that they feel better, and it's and then it either becomes worth it to them or not. You know, they can be the the weird guy at the table who says, "No, I don't. I don't do tomatoes anymore. Can you? Can I get something without that? Or they can. Or they can eat them. Or they can eat them w- once in a while, like like I do. I just I pick and choose. My wife knows. My wife loves Mexican food. We actually I proposed to her at our favorite Mexican restaurant, which shows just how much I used to I used to like salsa and and eat it. Um, and we. My wife knows that in the week after my meats, that's when we can go and have. That's when I, I allow myself to go and have it because I know it's not going to interfere with my training, and that's when it's worth it to me. So, um,
0: so Gary, you said you said the what was the washout period, and what is that based on? Like, if you want to get off and, and assess, you know, even if it's just keeping in your diet log, you know, a pain scale. You know, and I, I recommend that for everybody. Actually, you can do little Likert type scales, one to five, one to seven, one to ten, in your workout log. And if you combine that with some diet logging, it, you know it can be very enlightening. You know, but I mean, anyway. So, what, what did, you, did you say? The washout period you think is?
1: I typically suggest a month. Most people can wrap their head around that. Um, I do know that Dr. Sherry Rogers, who wrote a book on arthritis pain and that stuff, she recommended six weeks. But I found I found a month to work really well, and then and then really loading up on them on the day. I mean, most people are missing them by then because most people are very used to having them, and then they 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 have no problem, you know, salt on their eggs with a side of hash browns, you know, French fries at lunch with a hamburger with ketchup and tomato on it, and you know, they have no problem loading them up, um, which goes to show how easy they are to get, and then, uh but yeah, I typically recommend a month. Uh, the, the, oh, there's one other one to watch out for that that's sneaky. Um, paprika is a is a pepper, and most people don't know that. So there's paprika sneaks into all sorts of things, mustard, you know, all sorts of um, seasoning mixes. It's just paprika is actually probably one of the hardest ones to avoid of all of them. So, but yeah, that's that's the washout period that I've found. Yeah. And it's in a strange, you know, like the vitamin D thing, I've actually found that supplementing people with vitamin D when they go off the nightshades, actually they do. That is part of them typically feeling better. But I I, I supplement vitamin D based on blood work. You know, I'm not just willy nilly giving people vitamin D3.
0: Yeah, I, I I think there's been some people that just kind of went a little overboard on that. I know on the uh, the the T Mag or T Muscle website. A couple of months ago, there was something called D for doping, an article, and, and I like the idea that it creates awareness, you know, that people may be not be getting enough D, especially in northern climates, right? I mean, if basically you live much north of, I don't know, I think in one paper I even saw Atlanta. I mean, well, that's most of America, you know, that, and you, and you're always covered up and you're not getting much sunshine and all this kind of stuff, then, you know, you may have some issues with D. And I'll tell you what, one of the things that I guess, I guess my major concern about telling people not to eat stuff like peppers or tomatoes and stuff like that, or at least you know just to be careful. Again, consider this, listeners: just awareness. You know, it's one of many things you may be uh, genetically prone to. That's why we keep using the term nutrigenetics um, or nutrigenomics. But uh, it's sort of like the gout diet. You know, when when you tell people not to eat certain things and they're you know they're avoiding certain things, a lot of these foods are considered healthy foods. For other things, like you pointed out the lycopene in tomatoes, or there's probably other phytochemicals that work in concert with lycopene in tomatoes. You know, and So uh, these are the kinds of things where it may be an issue where you, as Garrett was pointing out, you introduce or remove from your diet for an, uh, a long enough period to make a decision. And again, it's sort of touch and go, it sounds like, because it's not like we can measure – like, for example, with something like creatine or even fish oils. We can look at tissue incorporation of these things and we know the washout periods, you know. And and we we can't do that same kind of thing with what what's going on here. So I think that's sort of the take home message of a lot of this is you know that this could be one of the things that you may be susceptible to, you know. And, but there's also healthful aspects to these foods. Like I said, just like, you know, people with gout, you know, there are certain foods that they avoid. But if you look at those, that list of foods, it's like, oh man, this looks like a very healthy list of foods that Americans don't eat much of. And, you know, so it's, it's like a a purpose driven thing, right? If your purpose is to alleviate joint pain, then you might want to think, well, maybe I'll remove tomatoes for a while, you know, but if you, everybody, all the men in your family have prostate cancer by the time they're 50 years old or something scary, then, You know, maybe there's maybe you wouldn't want to do that quite so much. So anyway, just you know, it's sort of a purpose-driven thing. It seems like to me. And just remember that you know, foods have all kinds of substances in them—some good, some not so good. And you know, and Garrett was pointing that out earlier. So,
1: yeah. Then I just want to add add one thing on top of that, real quick. Um, This is as I kind of mentioned to Phil earlier. We're not talking. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that this is a food allergy because people will say, "Well, I." Took a food allergy test from from wherever, and it said I I'm not allergic to to any of the nightshades. Um, This is more it'd be like you know like these compounds in foods that certain people have certain reactions to them or they process them in a certain way. Some people may be better than others. Um, It's not a food allergy. What I found is in people who are allergic to the the nightshades, they tend to have even stronger reactions. Of course, because their body's already reacting, they're having another reaction entirely on top of the possible innate reaction that these compounds may may have in their system.
0: Right, yes. And you know what, Len, if I can just lay down something very basic for listeners, too. Generally, food intolerances, which I think is more what we're probably talking about here, people who are susceptible.
1: Hypersensitivities, food intolerances, that stuff, yeah.
0: Yeah, as opposed to food allergies, which in technical, you know, I guess technically involve the immune system in some way. So... As a common example, you can be lactose intolerant, but that doesn't mean you're allergic to milk. It's a different system. It's not, you know, these intolerances are not necessarily immune system mediated. So just if that helps people who are listening.
2: yes. Well, I think this is great information, guys. But I mean, (laughs) unlike anything else, there's a lot of gray area, but I mean, it's worth knowing. I mean, ignorance truly isn't bliss, so.
0: Yeah, it's an awareness thing.
2: Yeah. So. We've got to wrap it up. Or we're down to about two and a half minutes here, so I just wanted, to, Garrett, can how can people find you?
1: Oh, um, my website is is oh, it's all spelled out, Doctor D O C T O R as A S Teacher dot com. Um, I hang around a lot on the performance menu message boards. Uh, let's see other places on the web. That's that's pretty much me on the web. My my, and you can find my practice through that on the web. I I take email questions and other stuff like that. That's mainly it, other than that, you can find me at you know meets around arizona and in, in the heavy sports. <laughs> I hope my uh, tech talk didn't confound
0: anybody yeah fortress your fortress is always way too chewy with the highly technical commentary uh, right yeah, right I,
1: sorry about that guys
0: <laughs>
1: i hope it I hope it wasn't too techy for for the listeners, but that was you fantastic.
2: Know. no, I think it was good, so great. It,
0: it, until next time, Garrett, again, again, thanks for joining us, and uh, see everybody next week. Okay, cool. Thanks for having me. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like Iron Radio, if you like what we do, uh, the education, interviewing uh, industry personalities, or many of the pro bodybuilders or coaches that we've had in the past, uh, please just click on the Donate button at www.ironradio.org. And make a donation. We've had some great donations from people that have kept us going. Thank you so much. Uh, so please visit uh, the website, click on the donation button, or if you like, uh, and it's a similar situation, buy some Iron Radio cool stuff. We've got T-shirts and mugs and things like that, and those things help support the site and keep us on the air. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.